you know, my whole life growing up, I saw the church as being so pivotal to support. Yeah. And then it was through my experience with Micah, I found the church in quote quotation marks to be everything around me and to not be as confined within walls and within certain people or within certain biblical values and, and you know, the way you have, you know, people approach life, but, the, the, but that the people who love you serve that purpose just as well through their actions and through who shows up. Welcome to Beyond Religion, a podcast about unconfined spirituality. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lott. As always, we are on a journey, and I hope you'll join me as we consider together spirituality beyond religion. Welcome to episode six. In this episode, I'm talking to a college classmate, Mary Michael Kelly. I appreciate you being patient with me, not getting this up until Monday. You can probably hear that I'm still just really sleepy. My son and I drove to Birmingham and spent time with my brother and then went to Nashville and toured Vanderbilt and got to hang out with friends there and talk about the college experience, then back to Birmingham, then back home, then wrote a sermon, then preached a sermon. And uh, it's been a few days. <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little weary. Um, so I took some time for myself and I'm putting this up a day late. Thank you for your patience. The episode today is long. You can see that already. And I will also say it's hard I'll give you a couple of warnings. Heads up, we talk about child loss, infant loss. We talk about when something goes wrong in pregnancy. We talk about the really hard stuff. And I think one of the things that has really drawn me to Mary Michael in the past few years, we talk about only really becoming friends in more recent years. One of the things that's really drawn me to her is the way that she just truthfully faces what is hard and beautiful about her life. And I think she represents stuff that we're all really afraid of. <laughs> she's faced the darkness. She's faced what so many of us are terrified could happen. And she's lived to tell about it. So it's absolutely worth a listen at the very least, just to hear from this really badass, amazing woman. And then the other part of that, you'll hear the beginning threads uh, early on, and then we'll come back to it towards the end. Uh, what happens when our lives are just too much for what church offers? When religious institutions are asking us to be really fixed characters static and not round. What do we do with that incompatibility? And often the answer is we diminish ourselves, we get small, we play the part. And I really love that the trend in the 
younger generations is that we're not going to do that. We're not going to play small. We're not going to play the part. We're not going to diminish ourselves. And if my life is too messy and too big and too sad and too hard and too everything, then so be it. So be it. As Elise Meyer says, if I am too much, go find less. I think that's some of what's happening in religious life in America right now is the way that we really live and the way that religious structures have asked us to live are incompatible. And you'll hear some of that in this really bold, wonderful, truth-telling and extremely Southern conversation with Mary Michael Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for being willing to do this and to uh, to jump on Zoom and tell me some of your story. Some of it I know already. And um, you and I never properly became friends. I know. Isn't that weird? <laughs> we just sort of jumped into the <laughs> middle of friendship. I don't really know how that happened. Um, I knew who you were. We both grew up in Mobile, Alabama. I knew who you were. You went to St. Paul's, right? I did. I went okay. to pre-K through 12th grade. So you were St. Paul's. Place. I was UMS. You were Spring Hill Avenue Baptist. I was First Baptist Mobile, right? Spring Hill. Yeah, Spring Hill Baptist Church, not yeah. Spring Hill Avenue Baptist. But okay, yeah, just Spring Hill mm -hmm. Baptist. Okay. And then we ended up at Sanford about uh -huh. the same time, but we were yeah. sort of in parallel circles. You were in 80 Pi. I was the Zeta. Mm -hmm. We both married some pie caps. Right. <laughs> I remember seeing you in the Panhellenic office, maybe like around Meg McGlamory, uh, yeah. Martin. Yeah. That's so, so always kind of at the periphery of my life for, for many, many years, but mm -hmm. it's been in the more recent years that I would say we've become friends. And again, just mm -hmm. kind of jumping into the deep end of friendship. Um, so let's back up of life in Mobile. You grew up in a Baptist church in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, what is one of your earliest memories of that being kind of the the life and the water in which you were swimming? I mean, you know, it was really, I don't really remember not being at church. Yeah. Um, we were, you know, my mom was always really, really good about pushing. Um, like we just, it wasn't really an option, you know, <laughs> like, yeah we were, we were there, if it, if the doors were open, um, you know, we were there, it was the Sunday morning, Sunday evenings, youth group, Wednesday nights, all the activities, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I did youth group. They were big into choir tour. They did this huge show choir and we went on choir tour. So everybody, when you're in elementary and middle school, you're looking at those high schoolers and you're seeing that they get to go on all these fun trips and you get to go to like centrifuge and yeah. all camps and and so everything was just this build up to once you get to be a little bit older and I did you know I found a real like home there I mean I was very involved made some of my very closest lifelong friends at church some of us went to church and school together a lot of us straddled both and that I think was the most interesting dichotomy for me I also went to a religious private school but it was an Episcopal private school yeah and sometimes I think about like at least sort of sort of my you know philosophies on things and and I think a lot of sort of the imprints I got the most and felt the most connected to were actually from the Episcopal 
um, tradition, a lot of them were from that Episcopal tradition because we also went to chapel every yeah. single week and went down, walked all the way down to the lower school campus to go to the Episcopal church and did the communion and did all of that stuff every single week. And so I really felt like I just lived my whole, my whole, or my whole experience was just like church, 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 and then religion, religion, religion. But it was, it didn't take long for me to kind of see that, like, you would see all these people talking all this stuff and doing all this stuff. But then the older I got, I realized we all kind of were taking cues from our parents and everybody yeah. around us. I mean, Mobile has a really, really heavy drinking culture. Everybody I knew was doing the church thing, doing this and that, and then including the adults, not all of them, like not my mother <laughs> stuff, but, and then doing what they wanted outside of church. Everybody kind of did what they wanted to do. And then they just, just didn't talk about it. Just didn't so talk so about as it. a high schooler, are you starting to feel like this is incongruity there or there's a dissonance or did it seem um, not something yeah. not to question? I mean, it definitely seemed like there was, but it also seemed like, well, maybe if this is just how everybody is, we would, oh my gosh. I, and I hope my parents don't ever listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> but like, we would meet up, you know, in high school, we would meet up, you know, trying to figure out what to do. It was like in Mobile, you either went to the Dick, which was I, the Colonel Dick. I was going to say you were in Colonel Dixie culture. I was in a different yeah. part of the part of the town. <laughs> we would do that or, and, and we would hang out there or we would just drive around everywhere, just drive. Um, but a lot of times we would meet up at the church parking lot and mm -hmm. once somebody would, you know, open up their car and they would have gotten all kinds of beer or wine coolers or whatever. And we would just sit in the church parking lot and drink in the church parking lot out in the middle, out in the wide open. And nobody, one time we got caught, one time we got caught, but that was just because one younger kid came along and then threw us under the bus. I guess I thought that's just how, how it was that you pretended to be, you had this outward facing appearance and this outward facing sort of look to things, but then behind closed doors, people were very different and that was just okay. It was a very kind of like dysfunctional way to live honestly. Did you, was um, there any, was there any guilt or shame connected to that? Or was it, it, cause you're talking about growing up in purity culture and being yeah, some pretty yeah. heavy stuff being shaped by it, but then uh, a much more informal party culture around you. Yeah. I mean, there, was, there definitely was, you know, it's interesting when I, I mean, I had been in the church forever. And I mean, when I had always kind of wondered, like, you know, you hear all this stuff, but I did not, I guess I was, I was, I joined, officially joined the church when I was nine years old. And interestingly enough, it was because of my experiences, because uh, I had always been very, I don't want to say skeptical, but somebody show me the goods, because I'm just hearing yeah. that you do this, but I want to know more. And all my friends were getting baptized, right? And I was just sitting there going, okay, I know this is something I'm supposed to be doing. Well, I had been, a, as you know, I'm adopted. Um, and I was adopted when I was four weeks old. It was a private adoption through Catholic Social Services. I really wanted a brother or sister. And of course, being younger, I didn't quite, I knew that my parents had adopted me and I had never had a time I was sat down and told that. It was just always, 
my mom rocked me to sleep every night from the time I was a baby and told me about how I was adopted and what it meant. So I never had a time, I never was one of those kids that dealt with like adjustment issues about being adopted or, you know, where do I come from this and that. I mean, obviously I have discovered so much more since then, which has been really, really a fun journey. But, um, but I wanted, I knew that they were going to have to adopt if I was going to get a brother or sister. So I, I, I started asking for a brother or sister when I was like four years old Um, and they wanted to go private adoption again. And at that point, a lot more people were starting to do it. They had been on the wait list for forever and it was going on like five years and we still had not gotten a baby. And I remember one night um, I was like getting ready for bed. I remember thinking, about how I knew I was going to have to make a decision about baptism or joining the church soon because all my friends were. And so I just kind of said, I was like, God, if you're there, like if you're really there, then you'll give me a brother or sister to prove that you're there. Wow. I mean, I was nine years old. A week later, my brother was in the house. Wow. A week later. And so I joined the church because he called my bluff. And so I, I joined <laughs> the church. Um, he or she or that, or whomever. I was really aware that people live different lives and that there was confusion in that for me because once I kind of had that experience, I did take it seriously as a, as a middle schooler. But then there's so much pressure that comes with being for any teenager in high school. Um, and so I was very much like I wanted to fit in like every other kid and what everybody else was doing was, you know, going to church and being good kids and then doing what they wanted to do on the weekends. And we never got caught. And so I just kind of went along with it. So you're growing up in this world where you're perceiving there's this kind of outward life, inward life tension. Maybe you sense that there's something's kind of off about that, but it's still, that's what we've known. I mean, we are are, at that age, our imaginations are pretty limited to what we have witnessed and experienced and seen Mm -hmm. represented. So how, um, (laughs) knowing, knowing the mobile world, how did you choose Sanford when the options were probably Auburn, Alabama, Sanford? (laughs) I don't know how wide range that it was presented to you. Uh, It was funny. I really, really wanted to go to Georgia, but at that point, the Hope Scholarship had had kicked in and it was really hard for kids to get in out of state. And I was so worried about not getting accepted that I just didn't apply. I decided not to apply um, because I did not want to get rejected. So anyway, I I had actually um, decided on Auburn. We had put a deposit down. I loved Auburn. I had a roommate. One of my best friends was going to be my roommate there. We were so excited. Near the, near the, in the spring of my senior year, we had gone up to Birmingham to visit my aunt, um, my cousin. And we were on the way about to head back home. And my mom was like, oh, let's just drive on Lakeshore and go just drop to Sanford. I want to see how it's looking because so both my parents went to Sanford. Oh, um, I didn't know that. And my aunt went to Sanford. Um and my and and my other aunt um went to nursing school at Sanford and taught at Sanford nursing for many, many years. Um so I had a big con- family connection um to Sanford. My mom was an 85 at Sanford and they met when my dad was a lab assistant and she was like um, dissecting a pig. They just wanted to drive through and reminisce. And so we were driving through the campus. And I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's a gorgeous campus. I mean, they freaking paint their their front grass green 
to make it look beautiful all year round. It's gorgeous. Right. And um, it is beautiful, beautiful. And so we were driving through and they were talking about, oh, look, that's where we did this. And that's where we did that. And it just felt like home because it was yeah. home because yeah. my parents went there and I had all those connections and it felt safe. There was also a part of me, however, that also worried that if I went to Auburn, I might get myself into a little too much trouble. You yeah. know, like I might party a little too hard and I might get myself in situations where I did not know that I felt ready to be in. And so I chose the safest option for me based on what I trusted myself with, interestingly yeah. enough, and I, what I wanted to make sure I surrounded myself with. I was very intent on kind of presenting myself and continuing to present myself as a very like good girl. I changed my mind and my friend was furious, but she got her. Went to St. Perks. Well, I think that's really interesting. This awareness, you're so self-aware, even at 18 years old, not just about your own limits and what might be the wiser choice for you, but also that notion of presenting as a good girl and Mm -hmm. that Sanford might be the place that would enforce, right? That would help, that would help maintain and put some structure around this good girl uh, Mm -hmm. persona, even if there was... I mean, I think it's a false dichotomy, right? We understand now that like, it's not either you're a good girl or you're a total wild child. Right. But but that's kind of, we felt like we had to make that choice. Um, So were you involved, continuing to be involved in religious life, religious identity throughout your years at Stanford? Interestingly enough, no. I stopped going to church. I felt like I almost had enough of it there. Like it was everywhere. Oh, it was everywhere. I was like, why would I go to church? I tried a few churches. I was very, very critical of every place I went. I mean, even like some of the more traditional Baptist churches in in Birmingham, I managed to find something wrong with. And I did not feel like I was so, so entrenched in the life at my church at home. I felt like none of them measured up like at all. And so I just kind of got sort of my like church fix through convo. Yeah. But I also started to notice that I felt like I was questioning a lot more when it came to not my belief in my higher power, not my, my own spirituality, but the, the construct of the traditional church itself, because I noticed that it wasn't just my church, that it would say that everybody was welcome, but that wasn't the case. There were white people. Where were the black people? Where were the poor people? There was no poor people. I was really interested in social services and in, and, and was really involved in community service and in volunteering, even in high school. And, you know, I had initially wanted to do social work, but was worried about my ability to pay the bills long term. So um, it's so I love that you had that thought because I didn't and neither did my husband. <laughs> and so we're now at 45 going, oh, it would have been good for one of us to have that thought. Anyway, sorry, go well, on. I mean, I ended up doing nonprofit, which isn't really that, yeah. <laughs> that much different, but it is a bit, I mean especially I was considering like social services and, yeah. and caseworker stuff but that those were the questions I kept having I was like this whole structure of modern religion claims to be the place where people should people are welcome and, and to come but they were welcome to show up to the food pantry to get food yeah 
but God forbid they show up at a service and, you know, anybody talk to them or anything like that. And it started to just make me more and more kind of uncomfortable about being a part of it. And also have this whole thing that goes on, especially in a lot of college campuses with the the college ministries, not just internally with, you know, student ministry, but the outside groups. Yeah. And I did listen, I listened to yours and Susanna Rayfield's um, podcast, and it is campus outreach, which we called campus cult reach, which was the beach, the beach project, summer yes, beach, project. beach project. That's it. what they called it. And they would, I had a friend who did it and he worked at Waffle, he was a Waffle House cook. They would go proselytize on the beach and try and convert everybody at PCB and stuff. Um, But I had campus, I call them campus cult reach and I still do and I don't feel bad about it. But um, two of the main leaders, I remember early in my freshman year, I had gone to one thing. One friend had said, come with me to campus outreach. It's so fun. And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe it will be. Maybe this would be a good alternative for me rather than trying to find a church outside in Birmingham. I went and I made the mistake of putting my name down on something. Now you're on the list. Oh my God, I'm on the list. Well, I was like, it was like a Tuesday afternoon and I was studying and doing homework and assignments and writing a paper in my dorm room and I was by myself my roommate went in there and I had a knock at the door and it was two of the campus outreach leaders and they were like hey we just wanted to stop by we just wanted you know and they were perfect like everything so beautiful so blonde perfect. oh yeah. my god she was blonde she was tall you know the guy was like you know perfectly quaffed all over he had his hair gel in it everything and they were like we're just so excited. We want to talk to you. And it, they literally, they said like two words, like two sentences. And they were like, so where are you from? I said, I'm from Mobile. And and she said, okay, well, so tell us about when you first met Jesus Christ. That was like the second thing out of their mouth. And I was like, um, <laughs> I don't really know you. I don't, I don't feel comfortable t- talking about this with you. And she said, um, well, I mean, was it, you know, you you say you grew up in a church where she would just kept pushing and pushing. And I said, yes. I mean, so I was like, I was baptized. I was baptized when I was nine years old. And she was like, well, you know, I just might encourage you to really dig a little deeper because if you're baptized that early, it could be that you're not really saved. Yeah. And I just told her to leave my room at that point. I said, you need to go. I said, I'm not interested in talking about this anymore. So I graduated in 99. When did you graduate? 2000? 2000, yeah. Um, I think it was after we were there that there was a situation at Sanford where that exact scenario was playing out and they were harassing the student to the point that she was terrified that she was not saved and ended up in a mental inpatient mental hospital. Oh my god! Because she was, I don't know if she she must have been self harming or having suicidal ideations, but she was tormented because the campus outreach folks kept coming. So I know that there was a period at Sanford where they that were they banned from campus because it had gotten to be so extreme. Yeah, it it really turned me off. And and what they didn't realize is if they had just come in and said, hey and stayed for five minutes just to introduce themselves yeah. and left, I probably 
would have gone back, you yeah. know, like I would have thought, oh, they made an effort, but them push, like the way they pushed, it was just, it was so inappropriate. And yes, I was 18, but you're talking about kids. Yes. These are kids, you know, now that I have a 13 year old son and I think to the, I think about the fact that him in five years would be how old I was. That's a kid. Yeah. They don't know what they're doing. They don't, you know, I mean. Well, and a lot of those were young adult people. I mean, they were in their twenties. The, the people yeah. who were working for that organization full-time. Yeah, yeah. No, I think and about the trying. mama bear in me, like how I would go off mm-hmm. if I found out that there was some <laughs> conservative yeah. evangelical organization targeting my children, which is what they did. They they picked buildings on campus and called them their target for that year. Mm-hmm. It would be an entire dormitory that was just where they were really putting their energy. Yeah. Ooh, so it's, so you've gone through, you've had experiences where you're th- saying this doesn't fit or this is completely wackadoo and I don't want to have anything to do with it, but mm-hmm. you continue to identify as Christian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else was there, right? Like it, right. It, it was the, it was the water in which we were swimming. So you, um, I know I'm fast forwarding a ton, but I want to get to, to the more recent decade of yeah. your life. Um, so you, like most of us, you meet somebody at Samford, you get married, you do the thing because that's what we're expected to do. Did you and your husband at the time continue to be church going people together? Well, okay. So first off, it's interesting. We, uh, we knew each other at, we knew of each other at Samford, but we actually did not actually meet and start dating until five years after we graduated. Oh, really? I graduated. So he was your year. Yeah. He was your year. Um, but it was, uh, but I had left, gone to grad school, worked two years in Tennessee, and then decided to make a career change into more traditional nonprofit from higher ed administration and moved back to Birmingham. And that was when we actually met through mutual friends, through a couple of families that we were friends with. Um, and I, because I'd moved back and I was really needing some social outlets, I just reached out to a couple of people I knew. And that was when, and we were friends for about a year, maybe a little less than that, before we started dating. And at that point, neither of us were going to church. He had just moved back to Birmingham from Dallas. And I had moved back from Tennessee and none of our friends, only actually one that I can think of went to church on a regular basis. No one else did. Um, And a lot of the people I knew uh, that, that left Sanford ended up out of not going. Um, You know, I think a part of it has to do with the, kind of transient nature of that young college, post-college life where you're moving to different towns, you may be going to grad school, et cetera. So it's hard to feel like, oh, let me get connected with the place because, you know, I may move in a year. It's just real hard to do that. Um, But another part of it is we were like, I mean, we were having a lot of fun. And for me, I was having a really hard time with being able to have a lot of fun, you know, and go out with my friends and go to bars and, you know, have a, have a rip roaring good time as a legal adult. Yeah. Um, and then go to church. I had a really hard, I, I felt like that was not like, I felt shamed, 
you know, but like there I was felt that, like I was shamed. You felt shamed by the people who were at the church that were expecting no, you to well, yourself. I was shaming myself. Yeah. And because yeah, there's that, shamed. again, that concept of you're, you're, we are to present this outward life and we are right. to present this good girl. Mm-hmm. Forget how old you ever become. It's still, it's still good girl that you're meant to be. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like you were very in tune with the dissonance of that and that, yeah. um, they were almost in, in, in competition with each other, those desires. Right. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I just felt like I, but I couldn't do both, you know, and I loved my friends and I was having a blast and yeah. I felt I just, I had done it all through high school, you yeah. know, I had, and I, and I had never gotten in trouble for it. And it was yeah. always fun that I didn't want to keep the, I was like, I just didn't feel right about it. So I just decided not to go to church. Yeah. Um, Because in my mind, I saw, you know, in my mind, I thought it was either one or the other, because there's not a place that will accept somebody just for who they are. If you drink, you're a horrible person or God forbid you have sex with your fiance before you're married or whatever. Yeah. It was just, I would rather, I felt so much internal shame for that, that had been just placed on me from years in the Southern Baptist church for being that way that I just felt like there were no churches that possibly could. That there was no room, (laughs) there was no room just to be, there was no room to be fully yourself, fully alive, fully questioning and figuring, figuring things out there. It was this pressure and is, I would say still continues that you are to arrive in church fully formed, whether it's an evangelical culture in the sense of that traditional orthodoxy around salvation or just evangelical in wanting, wanting to bring people in to be like us. The pressure I think is also, well, you can be kind of a hot mess for a little while, but You've got like maybe three months tops before we expect you to stop being a hot mess. And then you've got to turn that off and become one of us. It's a, it's a weird um, conformity and assimilation process. So you are feeling that stress. You're feeling that pressure or the tension. You live in a great life, having fun in your twenties, being a very normal person. You get married. Mm -hmm. And how long was it before Thomas was born? Not very long. I'd said I wanted to be married by the time I was 30. I got married when I was 29. I'd said I wanted to um, be done with having children by the time I was 35. So, and I knew I wanted to have three children. I had Thomas when I was 31. Um, We got, so it was about a year and a half. And well, hold on. It was about, yeah, about a year and a half. We got married in April of 07. And Thomas was born in October of 09. And was it healthy pregnancy? No surprises? No surprises, perfectly healthy pregnancy. Like my pregnancy test popped up and it was like, I found out, I mean, I was only like three weeks. I wasn't even, I hadn't even technically missed my period and I had a blazing pregnancy test and um, no problems whatsoever. Went to 40 weeks, no problems. He was born. I had a C-section with him because um, they didn't feel like he would fit you know, whatever. I wasn't going to fight it. So I said, sure, take him out of me however you want. And, um, he was great. He was such a good baby. He was, you know, perfect and came out with that, you know, bright red hair that he still has. And it wasn't long. Um, like Thomas was about nine or 
10 months old, I missed, I realized my, I had missed my period. Oh, wow. And I was like, uh, this ain't good <laughs> because when we started trying with Thomas, it didn't, it was the first month. I have a really morbid joke that I'm not going to say here. I've never actually <laughs> pregnant. I just have had trouble in some other areas. But um, no, because I, I, I had two miscarriages. And so I have said about mine, like I had no trouble getting pregnant. I just couldn't always stay pregnant. Right. I'm, yeah. I, I'm two out of four. <laughs> but they, um, yeah. So, and I realized I had missed my period or I was late, took the test. And I remember it coming up positive and I remember just crumbling into a ball on the bathroom floor, sobbing, crying. Like I walked in and BT was changing Thomas's diaper. And I mean, Thomas couldn't even, he wouldn't even crawl it. Yeah. You know? And I was like, I'm pregnant. And he, I just, he, he stopped her and he didn't even turn around. I mean, you know, he's very stoic and he just goes, yeah, I figured and just kept going. And I was just like, what are we going to do? We have this baby. This was not planned, you oh know, my word. all the stuff. And it was really scary too, because at that point, my mother-in-law was dealing with a leukemia diagnosis. Mm. And so we had a lot going on stress in the family that was, you know, really scary stuff. Um, but at the same time, I was excited because I knew I wanted more than one child and I was thrilled about it. Yeah. Um, and then when we found out it was a girl, it was even better. I was so excited. And we decided to name her Catherine because um, after my mother-in-law, she was not doing that great at the time. And so we told her and about, gosh, it was a week or two later, um, she had a stroke that was a side effect of her chemo pill regimen. Then she had a massive brain bleed about a week after that and died in February of 2011. And it was really, really a tough time. I was very, you know, I was probably about 26, 27 weeks along. I felt huge. And after she was, you know, after we did the funeral and everything and got back to Birmingham, I remember telling a friend of mine, I was like, I, I know this sounds crazy, but I've just done this and I don't feel, I feel so much bigger right now than I was at this point in the last pregnancy. And she was like, oh, it's probably just because you're stretched out. You're still so stretched yeah. out. And I thought, this doesn't feel right. And I called up the nurse and I was like, something doesn't feel right. I feel bigger than I should be. And she was like, well, your ultrasound last time was fine. She was like, we'll just check it next time you come in, which was at 32 weeks. So I waited because I took the doctor's wow. advice. I went in and they measured my belly. They just measured my belly. And that was 32 weeks. And I was measuring um, like 48 weeks. Yeah, so larger than full term. Um, and so they rushed me off for an ultrasound, obviously. And um, I didn't get news that day. They just said, we have to schedule you with maternal fetal medicine tomorrow. But then my doctor came in and she said, this was on April 13th. So she said, I don't want to um, scare you, but, you know, there's some things that we really want to check out. And it is possible that the baby could have a heart defect or something like Down syndrome or something like that. And that was just how they left it. I went into maternal fetal medicine the next day. Thankfully, was not alone. I mean, BT came with me. And um, that was when we got her diagnosis as having fetal hot drops, which is 
a very rare complication that has hundreds and hundreds of causes. Um, and so basically at the point of getting a high drops diagnosis, you're essentially just trying to find a needle in a haystack of what could be just caused by, I mean, genetics, congenital birth defects, viruses that the mother could catch, anemia. I mean, it just runs, it, there are so many causes of it, but it just essentially represents what is considered sort of fa heart failure in the baby. Okay. Um, where, she, and Catherine presented where she had fluid on her lungs and she had severe swelling and edema in her skin. And then I was presenting with what's called mirror syndrome and in, in the accumulation of, um, of amniotic fluid. And so and that's what you're feeling fluid. is that mm -hmm. you, you, you're I right, that you were a bigger, you're carrying way more fluid than you should have been. <laughs> right. And so, um, uh, we were, I mean, I remember not being able to sleep that night and just sobbing in the bathroom. You know, I, I Googled it and just read the statistics and they're just horribly, horribly bad. Um, when it comes to the ability for a baby to survive that, especially if you don't know what the cause is. Um, we transferred me to, my parents really pushed for me to get transferred to UAB um, from where I had been. Um, and so I did, didn't really want to, but I did, because, um, you know, UAB, right? And um, they were great, but they didn't give any options. I mean, they were like, it's really too late. I mean, they had done an amnio and everything came back normal. On paper, Catherine was perfect. Like if you were to look at every test they could do in utero that they could possibly do, she was perfect. Yeah. Um, but um, something was wrong, obviously. Um, and so they said, we just have to, our goal is to keep her in there as long as humanly possible. Because as long as she's inside you, she's growing and we need to give her lungs as much time to grow. I had no idea how bad her lungs were at that point. Um, and so... Um, I went, I made it another four weeks. Um, oh. but by that point I was the size of somebody carrying full-term quadruplets. Uh -huh. Um, that was how big I was. And I could not, I couldn't roll over in the bed. I couldn't go, I couldn't fit in my shower. Like we had just like a stand-up shower, you know? Oh. Um, I couldn't get behind the wheel of a car. Um, nothing. And I had a doctor's appointment one day and I remember telling um, BT, I said, I'm not leaving there. I'm not going back home. I'm packing a bag and I'm telling them they have to admit me. I can't do this anymore. My skin was stretched to the point where it was bleeding and cracking. Um, and it was just inc incredibly uncomfortable and painful. And I thought I've gotten her to 36 weeks. <laughs> yeah. That's that's as much as I could do. And I walked in and I had not been in there in a few weeks. And um, aside from just getting stress tests and stuff, and I saw the doctor for the first time in, in a number of weeks. And he walked in and he took one look at me and he just said, no, no, we can't do this to you. We can't do this. Oh my you. gosh. Um, and he, and they admitted me Um, and they removed four liters of amniotic fluid off me that day just to try to relieve the pain um that procedure alone is incredibly painful mm. but then um they scheduled her to be delivered the next day 
which was going to be May 13th on a fr Friday the 13th. Wow. Um, and so she was born, let out a few cries, but was clearly very, very, very sick. Um, and so she was in the NICU. Um, I mean, we were, you know, it was, it was NICU like constant. I mean, and we were trying to deal with an 18 month old at home. Yeah. My parents and his dad came up for the birth um, and stayed a couple of days, but they had to get back for work and life. And, and it was just us. And we had an 18 month old son at home. And, you know, we're trying to um, manage it all. I mean, and so it was basically, I stayed at the hospital overnight, you know, every night he would go get Thomas from daycare, get him home, come get me, bring me home to see Thomas some, get me back up there. I mean, it was just nonstop. And, but she was not getting any better. Thankfully, my best friend from Baltimore came and she was a huge support for me. She had a crisis one day and she was really, really struggling and they were just pumping her um, full of every sort of like, you know, life-saving measure they could without really, um, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know what was serious and what was not. My pediatrician just happened to stop by that day while this was going on. And this was about day day 11. This was day 10 or 11. And she said, and I said, well, what is, what is, I mean, obviously now I know like so much more. I mean, I could run a NICU. I'm just saying I could probably. I'm sure. But I was like, what does the CO2 mean? It's like, I mean, it was so high. And she was like, I'll just tell you, thank God for my pediatrician. She said, I've never seen a baby survive that high of a CO2 level. And and she said without having significant, significant damage to the brain and the organs and everything else. And that really kind of gave me an understanding of the gravity of it. I mean, I've since learned that a lot of NICU experiences are such that, you know, a lot of times they just do what they can to help the baby and to keep the baby comfortable to get, especially if it's a, if it's, they know it's going to be a fatal situation. Just think of the parents' time to get used to that idea and yeah. to and to let their brains actually absorb the fact that their baby is going to die. Yeah. Um. And so it was day twelve. I mean, it was day eleven that BT came and picked me up to go home and take a shower and see Thomas. And on the way home, I just like broke down crying, and I was like, I know that we will do this for as long as we have to. But I just, I don't know how much, I don't know how much longer I can do it. And while I was home, the NICU called and said, we have to tap her stomach. She's got fluid that's, that's spreading into her, into her um, abdomen and she's third spacing, um, which is where fluid just goes into every space of the body. And um, that was the night that we made the decision to take her off the ventilator, to take her off support. She was so sick. She. I mean, maybe two breaths, maybe before she yeah. before she passed away in my arms. Yeah. The chaplains were wonderful while we were there. They were super, very supportive. Um, the whole staff was great, but you know, just you were you think about all this happened also around one in the morning, the middle of the night. Um, and you know, we bathed her, we took pictures, we did all of the stuff. We had her. Um, we had them baptize her and then it's just like they just say okay goodbye it's the 
it's the strangest feeling just walking out of a hospital like in the dead of night it's like 3 30 in the morning getting in your car and driving back home my aunt had been keeping my thomas at home um for both of us to be up there having to explain you know thomas was so young thankfully he didn't really quite understand what was going on it was all pretty abstract for him yeah yeah i mean he knew something was wrong i mean he definitely was acting out and dealing with not having me around as much that was really hard on him but that was a really really tough time and because we had not been very involved with the church at the, with the church at that time we had been going to a presbyterian church here a little bit but we were not members we actually got the most support from thomas's daycare which was a, mm. which was a, which was a church daycare and they were amazing i mean the director was at our house that morning with muffins and you know a huge basket full of stuff and um they were really wonderful but you know, we reached out. We did get a pastor from the Presbyterian Church to kind of do her. We did a we do, did do it in church. We went up to Vulcan um, and did her kind of goodbye service memorial um, with our very closest friends and family, and everybody released red balloons and it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, and he said a few words there, but then I had some friends read some things. But you know, that was a weird experience because. We didn't have the strong sort of church, you know, when people in the South die, <laughs> it's yeah. great. You have food for like years, That's you right. know what I mean? And support for a little while. But we didn't really have that with her that much. We did some. And people obviously were very understanding. And my, my boss was amazing at work. We chose to do an autopsy because we wanted to know what caused it. We It took a while for the autopsy to come back. Um, and when it did, they said they that the pathologist could not identify thoracic duct. <clears throat> so they mm. believed it was something called a congenital chylothorax, which is a very common cause of high drops. And essentially, that's a leak in the thoracic duct. And they think that the day that she kind of blew up, her weight blew up a lot on like that day 10, she went from like nine pounds to like 16 pounds. And it was wow. all fluid. They think that her duct had ruptured and that that was their best guess. They said, this is what it is. And I said, are you sure? Are you positive? They said, this was a structural birth defect. And he said, we were meeting with the doctor and he said, he said, this is, you know, the good news is, is because it was a birth defect, this is unlikely to happen again. It was a fluke thing, you know? And I said, are you positive? He was like, this would be like getting struck by lightning twice or winning the lottery twice. He was like, you're good whenever you're ready. He was like, I encourage you to take some time, obviously, yeah. especially after what your body's been through. And so, um, you know, I felt so much better. I mean, obviously, I grieved hard um, through that process. And I had been pumping my milk the whole time, was also really um working on you know my work at the at the food bank um and that was when I actually got into my interest in milk banking too the big piece there is you have doctors saying this will never happen again yeah and yeah. so how much time was it before Micah was born um so we waited a year we waited a year um I was antsy before then but 
BT really wanted to wait a year. And so right at a year, the day after what would have been Catherine's first birthday, I had a positive pregnancy test. I was like, you know, obviously a nervous wreck, but I was so excited. Felt really good about it, you know, and knew that we were going to be in good care. I mean, I was with my doctor, my OB that I had been with for years and years. And then they obviously got me right in with maternal fetal medicine um, to be monitored closely. I was going to see them on a fairly regular basis. Um, And we kept it quiet for a while. Um, And then when I think I was, it was like at um, 12 weeks, I went in and they did a good scan and everything looked good. And they could tell with that one that he, that it was a boy. And so he was like, I was meeting with my maternal fetal medicine doctor and I was like, everything, you know, are you positive? You don't see anything. I mean, I was like scouring the ultrasound and he was like, all I want you to worry about is what you're going to name this baby. He was mm-hmm. like, "It this he is perfectly healthy. Everything is fine. And so um, we went ahead and, and and chose the name then because I had known that if it was boy, I wanted to name him Micah. And then Benjamin obviously is, is a family name. And so um, we actually named him Benjamin Micah Kelly. We finally felt comfortable telling people and everybody was so excited. Um, not that it was a boy at that point, I don't think. Then at my 18-week appointment in ultrasound, because everything had been going so great, I went by myself. Mm. Um, I told BT, I was like, it's fine. Not a problem. Everything's going great. And I went in there um, and, the, and the tech was getting very quiet. And I knew what it looked like then. I had seen enough ultrasounds of it to know what it looked like. And I, I said, is that what I think it is? And she said, hold on, I'm just going to go to Dr. Gonzalez. He came in and he, you know, looked all over and he said, I can't even believe I'm having to tell you this. Yeah. He said, but he has, he has fetal hydrops. He has the exact same thing. It's in his lungs and it's fluid in his skin. And, um, I just remember being like completely numb. Yeah. Like I was just numb. I was in total shock. Like my body was in physical shock. And I was by myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got out to my car because he said, I want you to come back. We've got to schedule you tomorrow. Um, or maybe it was like the next day. He said, I need to do some, some more workup. But he said, it was like, they had back-to-back patients at that point. He said, I need more time with you. Um, and a day, he was like, a day's not really going to matter. So anyway, I um, went out to my car, and I remember calling my dad. I'm sure I had called BT first, but I remember calling my dad. And he was at work. And um, my dad and I had such a very, very, very close relationship, despite having dealt with a whole lot um, of stuff. Um, growing up but I I called him and I just I couldn't even get it out I just was sobbing and sobbing and I and I couldn't breathe I was like trying to grasp for my you know gasping for air and he was like what is going on and I just said it's happening again and he was like Jesus fucking Christ Mary Michael and he said it like he was pissed at me yeah but he wasn't pissed at me he was 
experience. Yes. Like at the whole thing. It was at the whole and universe, God. all it of it. And everything. I mean, this whole experience really honestly caused a crisis of faith among our whole family, yeah. including my brother and sister. Families are so interesting in that you go through everything together and you feel everything together. And especially if you have one that we're all pretty good about being up in each other's business a whole lot. Yeah. Um, and, and so everybody feels everything um, really strongly together when you're, you know, no matter what. And I'm very grateful to have had a family who has gone through a whole lot of shit, but who has also managed to, um, you know, still learn to love and accept each other despite everybody's shit. My dad came up. He had a board meeting anyway, so he 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 came up for that next appointment. Um, and obviously, um, BT was there too, and it, it, that was really hard. He was it, that caused a lot of. I mean, we dealt with a lot of stress just between us. We were always very much best friends anyway, and so we we were we were were really good team and partnership. Um, when it came to like. Who's doing what? Who's responsible for what? What do we do? But, um, you know, like most men, they have a hard time with processing hard, hard emotions and feeling things really that are as raw as death and grief are. And he had lost his mother and his daughter in the year before. Um, and so he he didn't know how to help me all he knew was all he did what he knew to do which was anything he could do for thomas he did which was a huge help except thomas was a huge comfort to me as well yeah um and so and i needed sometimes for him to just say it was okay or just be there my dad came to that because we had done a ton of research and we had done enough research to know that if you catch high drops early, there is a procedure that they can do to drain fluid off of the lungs where they insert shunts into the chest cavity to drain fluid off the lungs. And so thankfully I didn't have to ask for it. I came in that day and they said, Dr. Gonzalez wanted you in here because he thinks you're a prime candidate for shunt placement. That was what we did. It took us three attempts and it was incredibly painful. It was not done under anesthesia or anything. They just, it's like a giant hollow needle that just gets poked directly into your belly through, through the womb into his chest cavity. Mm. And then they thread a pigtail shunt in to drain fluid off of his lungs that just goes then into the amniotic um, fluid. Um, the first shunt, Micah, uh, and it was funny because he had said, you know, this, this, the stubbornest ones sometimes will pull it out. We have to redo the procedure. And of course, Micah pulled them out. Um, and so we had to redo them. And then the placement wasn't good. So then we had I'm to laughing them. only because I, I followed all of this as you were blogging and sharing it uh -huh. online. And so I, 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 I feel like I know enough about Micah to laugh and yeah. say, of course, like absolutely course. he did. Yeah. <laughs> he pulled those out. So crazy stubborn about everything, but it did. It worked. It worked for a good. It it did what it needed to do. Um, it gave his lungs time to grow and mature. During this time, though, I was also taking over um responsibility of the food bank. 
um, like transitioning from assistant director to executive director um, and was trying to do it all. I mean, I was just, I, I was not going to give that up and I was going to make this work and we were going to figure it out. And my water broke um, at work one day um, and I was 27 weeks, Ooh. which is early for a baby, but for a healthy baby that's just premature, 27 weeks is totally survivable, yeah. even without long-term complications in this day and age for most babies. Um, but 27 weeks for a high drops baby is not good. They had fought to get Catherine to 30 to 36 weeks and she died. And so that was all I could think of. Um, but what they did is they kept me in the hospital for 10 days. As lo they would have kept me longer. They told me they were going to keep me there until as long as I could keep them in um, with the slow leak that I had. It was a slow leak. Um, but on Thanksgiving night, for Thanksgiving, everybody came up to my, my hospital room. Yeah. And um, the United Way was amazing. Uh, so many professional colleagues over there they sent a huge thanksgiving feast from cracker barrel over for the family and um it was a big day i got to put on jeans i like well because I, I had been on bed rest like full complete bed rest had to use a bedpan everything wow um they would not let me up for uh like 10 days at that point and but for thanksgiving they said they were like well you're doing okay we'll let you get up take a shower you know if you want to put on some regular clothes for your family you can say so that's what I did. And, um, and we had a wonderful, huge meal, caramel cake from my friend, from one of my best friends who brought it from York, Alabama, the works. I mean, is that yeah. the one with the really thin layers? Yes. Yeah. So good. Anyway, basically I stuffed my fucking mouth as full <laughs> as I possibly could. I mean, I just, ate like a beast I still have this picture that I took and I posted on Instagram from that night and it was just of my huge belly because not only did I have my kid in it but it also just had like I just gorged myself out so of course that night I had a placental abruption mm. shortly um, I had to get up they let me get up to go to the bathroom one more time after all my family left and I got up and I walked to the bathroom and I sat down on the toilet and I looked and I saw the trail of blood um coming from the bed and my whole body just started shaking and I like pulled the emergency cord and they came in and from there it was just boom I um, mean we had made the decision to stay at Brookwood um which is where we had um where my OB was I really liked their maternal fetal medicine and we interviewed their neonatologists um because Catherine had been born at UAB love UAB huge fan absolutely love them but we really felt confident in the neonatologist's ability to really prioritize um the approach that they had with Micah um it's a smaller NICU not as many babies and we felt like he might get more intensive one-on-one -on -one care I mean everything went fast thankfully my family was in town so my brother was at the house in no time to t keep Thomas for BT to come over I mean everything worked I guess they're already there couldn't have asked for a better scenario yeah. um and so Micah was born Thanksgiving night um and he was so so sick Catherine looked healthy at birth compared to how Micah looked. They told us that night to prepare for him not to survive. They said it, he's just 
so sick. Um, and he just kept pushing and pushing. I mean, like, it was like every single day he would make a new kind of, he would just push. I mean, the kid pulled his own intubation tube out at like three weeks old and they had to like restrain his arms and hands because he was just so handsy with all his tubing and wires and every time they they told us he's not going to make it he would what's interesting and the difference is is that after Catherine died we ended up joining um, a very large Baptist church here in the Homewood area a southern Baptist church that we had some friends that went to mainly primarily because we wanted Thomas to have some social like we wanted him to have that kind of church kid experience that both of us had and so at that point we had you know we were able to ask the pastor to come over and Micah had a real setback in December December 7th and they said he's not this is it this is what I know we know we've said this is it but this is we do not see him coming back from this we had the pastor come over and um pray over him and we prayed together and and we asked him to baptize him which you know the the Baptist version of it or whatever Micah's numbers then just started improving and he kept going from there and after nine months in the NICU four and a half months there and then we were transitioning children's for four and a half months he came home during nine nine months NICU stay I mean it definitely wasn't our last hospital stay that's for sure he was G2 he was on G2 for for nutrition and he was on full-time oxygen and was on like 14 medications a day uh, just to keep him stable and baseline but he um was home and we never we never thought he would be home for a single day and that was just a miracle in and of itself um but you know you see over time that you you start to see him like growing and and getting a little better and the medicine is dropped and then you're down to 13 medicines and then he only needs O2 at night and then he starts to actually show interest in real food and he starts to make all this little bitty bits of progress and then when he was 14 months old we finally felt confident enough to take him out of town to down to just a mobile to my parents house for the weekend he had what we call his first flare up I mean that's what it was um he spiked a fever of like 105 and he developed this rash across the trunk of his body and on his leg very unspecific and so we took him to the emergency room but they 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 were like this kid is out of our element we don't know this kid he is medically complex and so we then took a um BT was not in Mobile for this. This was me and our our nanny and our um and Thomas. Okay, I'm up here at some. And so we had to take an ambulance drive back, and I drove Thomas in the van, and and she carried Micah in her arms on the ambulance stretcher the four and a half hours back that it took. And that was at midnight. Basically, they thought he was septic. They did a full sepsis workup. He wasn't septic. So then it was like, well. I don't know. Follow up with your pediatrician. He was discharged after three days. That went on for a good four or five months until we were finally referred to pediatric rheumatology, where at his first appointment, we received the diagnosis of systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis. In adults, it's known as Stills disease. It's one of the, it's a rare subtype of 
juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And it's very much auto-inflammatory in nature. And for many kids, it's very difficult to get under control, which was- And so this is, this is now an additional problem. So there's fetal hydrops and then there's the arthritis stills disease that is a separate- Right. This is fetal. So yeah, there's feed and the fetal hydrops. We actually did not know still what caused it. We knew it wasn't a congenital birth defect anymore because Micah had a thoracic duct. Yeah. And um, so during all of this as well, we had been admitted into UAB's undiagnosed diseases program through genetics, through UAB genetics. And they did whole exome sequencing on me, BT, Catherine, they had actually kept tissue from Catherine in pathology. Whole exome sequencing was done on all five of us, Thomas, Catherine, Micah, me, BT. And, um, and, but those results were still outstanding because that just takes a really, really long time. And they work with Hudson Institute up in, up in Huntsville. And so um, we were still waiting. So, you know, I was like, does this have to do with the genetics? I don't know is separate is this because his body was in such a state of inflammation and shock and you know just constant alert for so long that his body's immune system has forgotten how to regulate itself I didn't know at that point we started dealing with the world of of arthritis of juvenile arthritis and and biologic injections and steroids and methotrexate and Micah also wasn't walking yet he hadn't started he was using a walker um he did not he was nonverbal at that point he still had not started developing his language but he also was I mean he was developmentally just behind from his nine-month Nikki it was very cute walker I remember these pictures so you're having to at this point you're having to tape the nasal cannula because he keeps rubbing pulling it off yeah and he would like Thank God he eventually got off that O2 because, oh my gosh, he was like master at pulling off the cannula all the time. He would like rip it so hard. He would leave like rashes, like rashes across his skin from where he would rip it off. Um, Anything that contained him, he wouldn't, he wanted no part of it. Yeah. He was not going to be contained um, at all, you know? And it was so funny though, because he would sit there and, gladly take his g2 feet where we dumped the fluid into his stomach while he ate cheese pringles and cheese <laughs> and whatever but god forbid he eat anything nutritious by mouth so yeah he was a, he was a nut i mean he was crazy um but yeah the walker was adorable he, he went to the bell center here and he got tons of early intervention therapies and um you know, the day I saw him walk for the first time, I just was like blown away. It was July of 2015. I was like, Micah, Micah. And he was standing by the sofa. And he, at this point, he still wasn't talking, but you knew he understood you. You yeah. knew he knew everything you were saying. And, um, and that he would, and cause he responded to direction and correction. And, um, and so I said, Micah, I was standing by the front door. I was like, come walk to mommy. And he turned around. And I mean, those little steps you could just see in his eyes. He was like so proud of himself and just, just beaming. And it was like, he, you know, how most kids, when they start walking, they kind of waddle for a little bit. He did that for just like a, a week maybe. And then suddenly it was just like, whoosh, Micah is gone. I like got places to be. 
chasing him everywhere. I mean, it was insane. He was, he was insane. He was crazy. And then the whole time, so you're having these, what it seems like progress and growth that you never anticipated you were going to get to experience with this miracle yeah. child, but then yeah. he would have flare ups and you would be back in the hospital. Yeah. It was about every four to six weeks we'd have, he'd deal with the flare ups. Sometimes they were, we were able to deal with them at home. Um, but sometimes they got bad enough to where we'd have to go in inpatient care. Um, and you know, his was a case that now working in the field of arthritis, I know is referred to as refractory SJMA, which is, it means it's just very difficult to control mm. um, and get under control. Because ideally, SJI kiddos will go into something called, will go into essentially what's called rem, same thing, remission, same thing like a cancer patient, where it is, uh, you know, latent or dormant in the body and is able to be, um, they're able to live a pretty normal, healthy life. Um, even so often many of them going off biologics or their medications completely. Micah was fully reliant on steroids. We were never able to wean him on steroids. He, his was never really able to get fully under control. And in um, November, uh, late October, early November, 2015, he started, he started having a lot of trouble walking and, and he had been walking great, obviously. And he was limping and, and favoring his left leg, um, like using his left leg more, like yeah. really kind of taking the weight off his right. And um, and then it started to kind of show some redness and some streaking. And so we were like, oh, geez. So we took him in. He had a septic knee joint um, that um, that was likely caused by I mean he had a lot of lymphedema and now we know why um but he um it, that was a very common problem uh, that is a very common problem among kids who have um hereditary um lymphatic uh disorders which we eventually found out that what caused all of this in the first place was um as crazy as this is, both BT and myself have a mutation. In layman's term, we found out that we both had the same hereditary blood disorder, wow. like me and BT. And it is a dominant disorder. I'm not going to explain genetics. You can look it up if you don't know what a dominant versus recessive is at yeah. this point in your life. But anyway, we didn't know that either, neither one of us knew we had this. We knew we would have had to have inherited from one of our parents. His best guess for him was it was possibly his mother dealing with her, the fact that she had blood disease um, and a blood cancer. And I had gone down the rabbit hole of looking for my biological um, connections during all this because I was so intent on getting answers to the genetics piece of it. Um, and so my best guess is it came from my biological mother as well. When it came to Thomas, Catherine, and Micah, Micah and Catherine inherited two mutated copies of this mutated gene yeah. that is known to cause a dominant blood disorder. But because of that, they connected with some researchers over in the UK and in Scotland and um, France and discovered that there were some very, there were some similarities with some other families there. And they actually identified a new um, 
recessive lymph hereditary lymphatic dysplasia disorder through this. So wow. they so that's what they believe um, is what caused the fetal hydrops because kids with um, one of the complications of this blood disorder is fetal hydrops and they had two mutated copies of this making them compound heterozygous wow. for this dominant disorder but also giving them this recessive hereditary lymphatic dysplasia so it kind of like multiplied and amplified the problem overall so whereas the, the doctor had previously said this will never happen again instead you now have evidence that shows oh there are real good odds that this would keep happening correct yes but thomas however did not inherit any mutated copy wow. so essentially he you know sometimes you know my first thought was oh so really it was like we had our we just had like our miracle lottery shot at this first yeah and you didn't know. um and didn't know we had no idea we had no way to know even if i had known honestly i'm really glad i didn't know that um yeah. when I'm glad they didn't discover that with Catherine because we wouldn't have tried, we wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have put another, you know, we wouldn't have put ourselves through that, through risking that. And we wouldn't have, we would have not wanted to put a baby through that. And so we just would have been, been like, we're good. Yeah. Um, and we never would have experienced the joy that was Micah. I mean, he was so incredible, um, you know, and um, so there were, you know, you look back and you see all these reasons for why maybe you learned things when you did and why you maybe didn't know things when you did yeah. and how yeah. sometimes things work out the way they should. And sometimes there's just no, no explanation. That's right. You know? And so Micah, you were able to celebrate four birthdays with him? Three. Three, three. birthdays. He um, died when he was three and a half. Three so, and a half yeah, he had a really, um, after that septic knee, he had a tough time after that. That was in November of 2015. And um, and uh, in May of 2016, so we're coming up on seven years, um, he had, um, I had gone to Mobile for the weekend um, to sell it for my brother's graduation from um, college, I think. And um, to celebrate Mother's Day because that Sunday was Mother's Day. And so after Mother's Day lunch and everything, I was driving back. I called to check in on the boys and um, they had said, you know, he had said they had had a good weekend. And so I got home and Thomas and BT were playing video games and Micah was just kind of sitting there just being whiny, just kind of being whiny, not anything big or anything, but um I went over to him and I picked him up and gave him a hug and I thought, oh, this is not good. He was hot. Mm. And, you know, I said, yes, have you felt him lately? And he was like, no, he's just been over there playing and whining and doing what he does. You know, he was like, I had no reason to really feel him. He just was acting. He said, I figured he was whining because of us not us playing games and him wanting to play or whatever. And so, um, Anyway, I went back, I took him back because temp was 106 um, mm -hmm. and it had never been that high. And at that point he was pretty inconsolable. And so we packed up, I, I rocked him um, while BT was packing up the car and getting that. We basically had a hospital bag that was all, always ready, but just kind of getting it refreshed. 
and I was rocking him and I, I said, you know, because at this point he had kind of developed a few words, probably about 15 or 20 words that he could use and he was hysterical using them. And, um, and I said, honey, I said, this fever is too high. I said, we've got to take you, mommy's going to take you to the doctor. We've got to get you to the hospital. We're going to figure out what's going on. And I said, because we've got to make you better. And he just was just tears running down his eyes. And he just said, okay. Mm-hmm. And this is the last, last thing he ever said to me. Um, and it went downhill quickly. Like we got there and, you know, within an hour, he was being admitted to special care unit. And within a couple hours after that, he was to the point where he was just not even moving on the bed. He was just so, he, his body was just shutting down. And I knew what I, I thought I knew. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I have a very strong mother's instinct about this point. And I felt pretty confident that I knew what it was. And, um, and by midnight that night that he had been transferred to the PICU um, and was um, on full ventilator support. That next morning, I walked out into, um, or, you know, by the next morning when they came by, you know, I said, I need for y'all to run, you know, specific tests. Um, no, I asked them that night. I said, I need you to run these specific tests. And they said, well, the lab isn't open tonight because it's Sunday night and it's a holiday or Mother's Day. They said that, so they won't be run until the next morning. And I was thinking, this is time. I mean, we're talking about time because there is a complication of, of kids with SJIA called macrophage activation syndrome. And it's a very rare, but very fatal complication. Um, very similar to, I don't know if you read any of the stories in the news of kids with COVID who developed that um, multi-system inflammatory um, disorder. It's very similar to that. Um, And uh, by the time um, they got the labs back Monday afternoon that confirmed it, um, he was on like full support. His organs were shutting down. He was in DSC. He was you know, I don't, I've never shared pictures of him from, from that time because it would just break people. Um, he was so sick. I mean, he was just not him anymore. Yeah. Um, and I remember going, everybody was there. My family was there. I had friends there. My best friend, again, flew down immediately because I told her, I said, I think this is it, Cheryl, you know, and, um, and she was on the flight and, um his neonatologist from Brookwood came Mm. I mean like he he impacted so many people um so Monday night all night we took turns holding him between me and BT Kelly who was his nanny um and held him all night long that and the nurses were amazing they you know they moved him whenever we asked um but he was I mean he had been he had been unconscious since Sunday night. Um, and, and they had done everything there was to do. Um, and they had been even funneling in the medication that they would need, he would need for, for MAS and it was not working. Um, his organs were just, had already begun. They were too far along in the process. That morning when it was my turn to, or I think one of the others was holding him. 
and I walked down stairs and I walked outside to the children's ER circle where people do drop-offs and I went over on the side uh, just over near some picnic benches and um definitely smoked a cigarette <laughs> and um and just sat there and just you know just tried to tried to think and I just kind of looked up at the sky and I gave him back and I just gave him back I just said this is I can't do this to him anymore um and so it was still dark out at that point it was like five in the morning and I went back up and I told them it was just the three of us in the room at that time I told them you know I said it's we need to we need to do this we can't let him suffer like this anymore um and so we called all of our family over and I mean I had one of the things that I had said was I was I refused to hold him while he died in the middle of the night so I wanted to wait till the morning because we dealt with that with Catherine and I refused to be alone I refused for it to be just us and so you know there with him it was me it was all it was the three of us and then you know my best friend and then my brother and my sister and my mom and my dad and I'm pretty sure my aunt I know at least one aunt and another friend I mean it was as many people as we can have in there just surrounding not for him because I believe he was already gone but um but for me (laughs) and that was a real kind of turning point for me to realize oh I don't have to do all of this by myself you know like just to kind of say that I needed somebody else to be there and I needed to have that support or that I deserved to have that support that I did not have to do it by myself because we've been doing most of it by ourselves for the last three and a half years because of family living out of town Um, and it was wonderful Um, it was very peaceful it was all I mean we were just horrible messes I mean everybody was just sobbing it was the saddest moment of my life it's a really weird feeling to to feel almost sometimes grateful you know but most people get to say that they're there for your child's entrance into this world but not many people get to say that they're there for your child's entrance and exit and there's beautiful parts to both of it there's beautiful parts to death and seeing that sort of like sweet release and knowing that they are you know that your loved one is out of pain I mean the same way that you feel about when you have a parent die or a pet die or anything that those same feelings of knowing that you love someone so much that you are you feel peace and knowing that they are at peace the same things apply to the death of a child as well no matter it doesn't mean it's not painful it doesn't mean it's not that but there is beauty in that sort of process of of being able to to experience that and to usher them through that and hold them through that um because not many of us get to die with our mothers holding us you Mm. know losing him has taken I mean it really took a lot from us I mean we have just as a family in general 
have struggled and suffered and watching Thomas, um, having to tell Thomas, you know, they were, they were three years apart. So Thomas was six and a half years old. So it was totally different. Yeah. Than how it was with Catherine, obviously. Um, and the first, we pulled him out of school because he had been at school that day. We were trying to keep things normal for him. Um, and we took him to the park um, and sat down and, and BT just, he couldn't even get out. He couldn't get out the words. He couldn't say it. And so I just, I told him, I said, Thomas, I'm so sorry. You know, I said, your brother died this morning. He was sicker than we thought. And the look on his face, I'll never forget it. But he, he said, um, you know, the first words out of his mouth were, can we adopt a baby? Oh, um, because they don't know all they can, you know, there's the, the way a child thinks is I have just lost something so big. So I need to replace it with something just as big. I just, you know what I mean? Anyway, it was really, you know, it was a challenging, I don't want to say year. I mean, it still continues to be challenging okay. in its own ways, the way grief works and it sneaks up on you and stuff. But it, you know, it gave me um, a real unique look into sort of how I viewed, you know, my whole life growing up, I saw the church as being so pivotal to support. Yeah. And then it was through my experience with Micah, I found the church in quote quotation marks to be just everything around me to not be as confined within walls and within certain people or within certain biblical values and, and you know the way you have you know people approach like but the the but that the people who love you can can serve that purpose just as well through their actions and through who shows up my best friend in the whole world I mean what was even crazy is when we first met in grad school, she was a self-professed atheist slash agnostic, probably more, whose one side of the family was Jewish and the other side of the family was Catholic. And, you know, she was about as confused w with all that as, um, you know, anybody. And I was just as much confused on the other end because of being just indoctrinated with so much shameful rhetoric my whole youth and watching the two of us come together especially and watching her support me and be there for me and so many other people from so many different walks of life I felt like taught me more about faith and humanity and in a higher power and in something larger than myself than any sort of ecumenical doctrine doctrine or church building or group of people who subscribe to the exact same yeah. thing ever could yeah I'm thinking back to you talking about drinking in the church parking lot as a teenager <laughs> and identifying that there's this double life thing happening of the way we're supposed to present ourselves versus the way we really live and that the two things can't live together they can't coexist and so now you've experienced twice the unthinkable yeah and how in the world would church as we've known it be able to hold any of that if it couldn't even handle some kids drinking in the parking lot yeah I mean if they can't even handle that I mean you know when we 
we did talk some when, when Micah was younger about trying to get back to church, especially for Thomas. And it was, oh, we don't know if we can handle Micah. Like, we don't know if we can, we can, you know, he's got a G2. What if it comes out? At that point, there, you know, and they, a lot of churches have done farther. I will give them credit for their work in trying to accommodate special needs um, families, but not far enough. Yeah. Make it easier on the families. Don't make the families fit something that doesn't work for them. Yeah. Um, because that was one of the reasons why we just finally were like, you know what? It's not even worth it. You know, like not only are we having to deal with trying to get them to figure out or to, we almost felt bad asking for what we might need from Micah at that church. Yeah. But even then, we show up and we're the people who have lost one, have, have lost a child. And then later you show up and you're the person, you're the mother who's lost two children. Nobody knows how to relate to the mother who's lost yeah. two children. No matter how much they say they do, unless they've lost two children, they don't know how to talk to you. And, you know, that's one thing I've really struggled with is, is like in establishing new relationships with people. It's almost like I, I, I've gotten a lot better about it, but people don't know how to talk to you. And so, yeah. I mean, I had a situation a couple of years back where a woman who I'd been literally standing at, at the corner of the elementary school waiting for kids to get out for like a year and we would be having small talk and stuff. Um, and I thought we were kind of getting to know each other a little bit. And finally, one day she said, I need to be honest about something. And I was like, okay. And she said, this is funny. I could say this. she's one of my better friends. Too. And she said, I've known who you are this whole time. And I followed your Micah's page since it was started. And she said, but I just didn't know what to say to you. And yeah. she, and I was like, well, you could have just said that. That was yeah. a good place to start. And she was like, I just don't know how to how to handle. She was like, people feel like they have to handle my loss. And I don't need anybody to handle my loss. Or Mary Michael, I think part of it too is it's like people are afraid if they say something, then it's like you've somehow forgotten. Like if right. I say something to you or I ask you a question or right. tell me what Micah was like, that it's like, well, then she's going to remember again. And it's going to be so sad as though it's even possible right. to have a single moment where you don't remember. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, I think that's part of it. And I also think not just church though. I really want to lay a lot of it at the church's feet right now. Our culture can barely handle talking about death when it's a 99 year old. Oh, I know. We yeah. can barely even handle that. Is, is incomprehensible. Yeah. With so many people. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And we did, we had this funeral at the church. We had it in the chapel and they were very, they were supportive. Then we went through our own struggles and, and ultimately separated and divorced and we still remain co-parents to Thomas but that's another area that churches don't know how to deal with families that are different and especially us because we get along but if wow. we're in that restrictive 
religious culture, we're already, we're denying parts of ourselves and pretending they don't exist and disconnecting from parts of who we are to present that I'm this upper middle class, totally put together white person. And that's what the expectation is. And that somehow that expectation is what it means to be Christian, which is already sick. Then any, uh, any diversion from that, there's not, there's not room. To me, when you relate the most, like just thinking about like the Bible and like the stories of like the, you know, the stories I've always related the most to are the ones of, of struggle and heartache and, and, you know, um, often women who were, who were treated, you know, deceived or treated poorly or, you know, and one of the things that, that I think does not help this, especially when it comes to parents who have lost a child, is there are so many stories in the Bible where the woman is, the whole story about the woman is about her ability to conceive and have children or her struggles with that or the children's, the children's, you know, your, your ability to have a fruitful family and multiply is reflective of your, you know, the favor that the Lord shines. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and so it wasn't that safe for families like us who have gone through struggles and lost two children and have divorced and who but who are still working hard to raise an amazing kid but you know when all you hear are you know the lord blesses those who are you know with the fruits of their wound you know all that crap well and the and the danger of that language of blessing especially Uh, when you look at that word in hebrew the root for bless is the same root for curse so when uh, you're Talking about God blessing, you are also automatically implying that there's some cursing going on somewhere. Right. And yeah. it's so gross because it implies that somehow all of the success and the wealth and the good fortune that I'm experiencing comes from God, divine source pouring it on me. I dealt with, and I still do, I had a lot of anger. It stemmed from seeing social media postings and things like that, where people would say they might have a sick baby or a sick child, or they might be sick or whatever. And the Lord heard our prayers. That's the right. Lord heard yeah. our prayers and our child is healed. And what is that? I mean, like, did I not say it loud enough? Did I not scream it loud enough? That is so messed up to it even is. imply that it's not just that we just live in a completely broken world and yeah. horrible things happen yeah. and wonderful things happen. Yeah. I, one know? of my favorite um, in seminary at the very end, you get paired up with pastors to do kind of practicum and l- learning how to be in churches. So uh, Betty Pugh Mills was the one I was working with. And I can remember her saying, I don't understand why people would rather believe that God is just a son of a bitch than to believe that the world is just sad and random and painful things happen. And that there is a God who is sad with us. Yeah. Yeah. It implies a weakness. It implies a distrust of, you know, the whole, you know, universe and of, 
and of God's ability to to relate and to and to care and empathize and 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 be sad. And it also implies just it's it's this self righteousness that mm-hmm. implies that you have any that your actions have anything to do with your quote blessings. Not only are you implying that your prayers are better. Or that your actions have have caused this, and that's even getting into like prosperity gospel. Practice. Oh, absolutely! That somehow you were close enough to God that God chose to not kill your children. Right, exactly. That's just it's when, yeah, it's it's one of the holiest show. women I know was my grandmother, who died just before COVID at the age of ninety nine. I mean, we used to joke that she must have had like a telephone to Jesus. Her youngest daughter died at eight months old. Mm so ridiculous to even think that the two are in any way combined especially when it comes to healing people or healing a child it's it's inconsiderate and it's really disrespectful to the people who have really gone through so much and are just really even just trying to keep some semblance of um, faith in just their ability not just keep a semblance of faith but keep faith in their ability to keep faith i'm inspired and encouraged that you even want to keep some kind of faith (laughs) i i think it's really easy to just say um the the damage that people have caused in the name of god in the name of jesus is so tremendous sometimes why why even try to reimagine something bigger and better than that but i'm grateful that you keep trying and that you find beauty and that you see you're not just finding it but you see the beauty of community and support and grace that's around you um and that you know this is what's real and that's the distance that you felt even back as a teenager Um, yeah and I don't I mean I I have no interest in, in you know my interest in attending something within four walls or being involved in any sort of group that even in the least bit appears exclusionary. You know, I don't feel during this point, I mean, I have definitely struggled with anger and um, just rage and anger. God can handle people's anger, you know, like there's no, and I, you know, it's honestly taught me so much about about just kind of looking at things in a much larger lens of of respecting each person's sort of individual uniqueness. I mean, if we're all made so uniquely, then our experiences with spirituality and with discovering our own path is going to be just as uniquely individual as well. And it just, there's, I don't see as how if the current you know church continues down this path especially some of the larger more conservative denominations that they're going to be in any way continue to be relevant with generations in the future too too hard when you've got kids even our even our children's ages that are saying wait a minute why do i go somewhere and there's no there's no you know and like the fact that my 13 year old just not like they've got trans kids in their grade yeah and they they don't even question it they're yep. just it's just a kid you know like it's just a kid and so like that 
there's going to have to be like a massive shift in the way, you know, the way spirituality and religion and religiosity is approached outside of like structure and um, sort of the old guard. Yeah. And and I would say, and, and the parameters that structure and the old guard put on it, like, like, yeah. <laughs> like stories of breath that creates a universe can be contained, right? <laughs> like these stories I, are so wild. And then we decide, well, we're going to put some real limits on it. We're going to, we're <laughs> going to call this small when really it's this poetry of imagination of imagining yeah. that it's all so much bigger and so much more beautiful than yeah. anything we even have language for. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart and your story and your children with us. Um, I'm excited well, to watch early redheaded boy keep growing. I know he's awesome. He's wonderful. I appreciate this. This has been fun. It's always so fun to talk to you. <laughs>